this is week two of our series, Declutter. We're talking about uh, getting rid of uh, people-pleasing today. So you know how clutter works uh, in your home. Things just gather up over time, and, and anything that's familiar becomes invisible to us, doesn't it? The familiar becomes invisible. Things that we used to appreciate, things that were new, it's true in relationships. I mean, we can, we can forget why we fell in love because the, f- the familiar becomes invisible over time. And it's that way with, with clutter. You bring something home from the store, you put the bag over there, or just, this mess doesn't get cleaned up, or this book gets left over there, and just clutter builds up over time, and it just becomes invisible to us until it's not. When maybe we invite somebody over, like I said last week, you invite somebody over for dinner, and you think, oh man, you, you kind of, before they come over, you look at your house through their eyes. Oh, I gotta clean up that clutter, I forgot to pick up that mess. And, or if you're like me, it's when they walk through the door and you finally realize, oh man, I forgot to clean that up. And so clutter is like that. It's invisible until it's not. And if you struggle with people-pleasing in your life, that may be invisible to you until it's not. And so just to get a definition that we can work with today, Webster's defines people-pleasing or a people-pleaser as a person who has an emotional need to please others, often at the expense of his or her own needs or desires. So when we talk about people-pleasing, we're talking about a desire to please other people and make them happy, even if it costs us emotionally. We're not talking about just being an altruistic, sacrificial good person who does you know, good deeds you know, occasionally, or hopefully more than occasionally in our lives. This is beyond that. This is, this is needing to be needed. If you've heard the term codependency, that can be connected to people-pleasing. Just having the need to make other people happy, to keep other people happy, keep them satisfied, even if it costs us something. And that's just a continual pattern in our lives. So people-pleasers tend to neglect ourselves. We may come to resent everything we do for other people if we feel like they're not really appreciating it, but we feel like we have to keep doing that to keep them happy or to impress them, and we can come to resent that if we're honest. Sometimes we struggle to enjoy activities that we should enjoy. Maybe there's this thing you've been looking forward to for a while, and of course you're doing all the work, you're planning, and you're getting ready, and you're anticipating making everybody happy, everybody's gonna enjoy this, and then you get to that event, and you find that you don't really enjoy it. You've put all this time and effort into something that feels like that. Because there was a cost to you. People pleasers are prone to anxiety and depression. Their resentment may come out in passive aggressive ways because they feel like they just can't come out and say it and express their feelings and so it may come out in, in other ways, maybe even psychosomatic illnesses. And of course, people pleasers are likely to th- be taken advantage of because there are a lot of people who, you know, if you're willing to do a lot of things for them, they're like, cool, great, and, and they're not going to stop you. So people pleasers are often taken advantage of uh, for all the things that they do for other people. So here are uh, 10 signs you might be a people pleaser from psychology today, August 23rd, 2017. See if you can identify with any of these. You pretend to agree with everybody. Is that a struggle for you? Somebody says something and maybe you either pretend to agree or you just don't say anything. You don't want to ruffle any feathers, just keep the peace, don't rock the boat. You feel responsible for how other people feel. If, if they have a certain emotional reaction, you feel responsible for that. You apologize often. Do we have a, do we have a lot of chronic apologizers here, perhaps? Always, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. 
You feel burdened by the things you have to do. If you're honest, you think about your to-do list, man, this is a weight. And then, and then every once in a while you ask yourself, why am I doing all these things? Well, perhaps there's something else going on. You can't say no. Uh, you feel uncomfortable if someone is angry at you. If somebody's not happy with something you've done, it's just, it just, it just irks, you, irks you and, and you feel uncomfortable. You act like the people around you. And once again, that's kind of like pretending to agree with everybody. It's just kind of blending in. I don't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable by being me. I don't want to be myself around these folks and have them feel bad around me. So I'm just going to blend in and act like them. You need praise to feel good. So you're doing all these things for other people, and, and it would just be nice to hear a thank you every once in a while. But that, that, that thank you, that praise, of course, everybody wants praise to a certain extent, but that praise can become fuel, and if you don't get it, you feel resentful. You go to great lengths to avoid conflict. Do we have any conflict avoidance people here? Um, you want to shout, but then you're like, I don't want people to feel bad if I shout. So, like, yeah. The, the jokes aren't going to get any funnier, guys. Like, that's as good as it's going to get. So, yeah, you got, you got to lower your expectations for my sense of humor. It's not, I, can't, I can't do much better. And then number 10, that wasn't funny either. I tried, but that, that wasn't any better. So number 10, you don't admit when your feelings are hurt. So you just kind of keep it quiet, keep it inside. Are you a people pleaser? Let me ask you maybe a more poignant question. Are you a people pleaser really, but you don't even want to admit it to yourself? Are you a people pleaser? Can you identify with any of these? There are usually two causes, according to uh, this consensus of, of psychologists of people pleasing, two fears, the fear of rejection and the fear of failure. And they can work out in, in different ways, work themselves out in different ways, but there are usually two fears behind people pleasing. And fear of rejection might look like this, if I don't do everything I can to make this person happy, they might leave me or stop caring for me. If I say no, if I, if I draw a boundary line, if I don't do something this person wants me to do, then they might reject me or, or stop caring for me. Fear of rejection can come from early relationships in which love was conditional. Or uh, you were around somebody who was hard to please. It's not hard to see how this can take root in somebody's life where you were rejected or left alone by somebody that you considered important in your life. Uh, even if somebody was there physically, maybe they weren't there emotionally for you. And there can be the sphere of rejection that comes from that. People pleasing is a way of you trying to keep that from happening to you again, to prevent that painful thing from happening again. And then secondly, fear of failure is this underlying feeling that if I make a mistake, if, if I somehow am not quote-unquote su successful, then I'll disappoint people, or I'll be punished. If I do something they don't like, then that's failing. Or if I'm not some kind of a success in life, then these people won't like me. I won't be worth, worth their time or their, their emotion. And fear of failure can arise, again, with, uh, from early experiences of severe punishment, even for small mistakes. People who had highly critical parents, they develop a people-pleasing pattern. Early experiences of harsh criticism or walking on eggshells, that, that can lead to the sphere of failure, doing something, doing something that's going to set somebody off. 
If I act a certain way, they're just going to go off, and that's why I have to just keep the peace. And that, that can even be a, a fear of, of failure in, in some way, like you're failing to keep that person happy. Even if the, the, the person is no longer in your life, the anxiety from experiences like that can live on for a long time. And people-pleasing can be a way to try to cope with that anxiety. Just do everything right, never make a mistake, and never fail. And, and of course, that means don't take any risks either, because risk increases the chance of failure. And so it just means just staying quiet and, and not walking on eggshells all the time because I'm afraid of failure. Both of these fears are connected, but they can work themselves out in different ways. So a weight loss coach tells the story of Janet. Janet was a client of hers who came in. Janet was a 42-year-old mother of two boys, 11 and 13. She works full-time as a nurse. She's 50 pounds overweight, hasn't lost any weight after 10 weeks in the weight loss program. This is a weight loss coach telling the story of Janet. So we sit down and figure out what might be wrong, and she says she hasn't started exercising or keeping a diet journal, and she continues to eat fast food several times a week. And, and the coach says, you know, why? You know, what's going on? You're not really you're not going along with the program. And Janet said, well, I'm too busy. She said, my only chance is to get up at 5 a.m. And, and go walking, but then I get up and realize how much there is to do. Anybody identify with Janet, for us? I do. And I find myself getting distracted, making lunches, getting on the computer to respond to emails and other things around the house. She says, I can't exercise after work because I have to drive straight to the boys' games. Jack has soccer on Wednesdays and Saturdays. Jason has baseball on Tuesdays and the karate on Friday. By the time we get home, we're starving, so I just throw something together quick or, or go through a drive-thru if I haven't planned dinner in advance. And after dinner, I feel guilty and start planning dinner for the next day, and it's probably 9 p.m., and I'm ready to crash. And then she said, I have to make it out to the nursing home to see my grandmother twice a week, which I fit in on the weekend, that day that the kids don't have a game. And she said, I'm exhausted. There's just no time. And the weight loss coach here says, Janet, this might, this might hit kind of hard for some of us. The weight loss coach says, Janet is a people pleaser. All of her time revolves around taking care of other people. When she says she has no time to exercise, she's right. She definitely can't exercise if she wants to keep all these commitments. Now, of course, she's a mom, and do moms take care of their kids? Yes, but there's this line where I cross from doing the right things for the right reasons. Well, you take care of your kids because you love your kids, of course. Well, you're doing the right things for the right reasons, but there's this line where I'm doing the right things but now it's for the wrong reasons. I'm, I'm doing so much because I feel like if, if I stop anything, if I don't do everything to make them happy, if I'm not running here and there and everywhere and visiting this person and doing this thing and, and, and three sports, and if I'm not doing all those things and I'm a failure as a parent, and failure or fear of rejection, fear of failure, and, and so I have to please all these people. And she doesn't have time to take care of herself. So if there's a line from doing the right things for the right reasons to doing the right things for the wrong Reasons. I saw another example of fear of rejection this week. Somebody messaged me uh, from Colorado, and they've been paying attention to this series, actually. It's pretty cool, through social media. And somebody that I, that I knew, you know, before anyway, but um, uh, she messaged me, and, and it reminded me, sometimes we're put in a position where we have to make a choice to either deny what we know is right, um, and please somebody, keep somebody happy, or we do the right thing, or do what, what will make 
us happy in a good way. Not in a selfish way, but in a good way. And so this friend of mine messaged me this week, and, and uh, she said a friend of hers is, is starting to date a guy who's a pastor. And I read that, and I thought, well, here's your problem right there. Friends don't let friends date pastors. You know, we, I can, no, I'll, I'll read on. <laughs> and and uh, she said, well, here's, here's the issue. My friend is white, and the pastor is black. And her parents don't like that. And, she, and she's like, do you, do you have any resources that I could like send her parents, that they, like books they could read about racism? And I, I, read, I read the message and I was, I was dumbstruck. And, and uh, my thought was, you know, I, I don't know that there's a book that is, is going to help there. And honestly, I wrote back and I, and I said, seriously, I, mean, I, I really empathize with her situation. And honestly, I'm like anything by Martin Luther King Jr. You know, because I'm, I'm th- as I read this, I'm thinking, you know, there was a speech back in 1963 called I Had a Dream, a really long time ago, when, when he talked about not judging people by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. And, and you know, I was thinking, if her parents are in 2020, are, are there, I, I don't know of a book that's going to help with that. And I said, you know, really, I, I would say if she really wants to try to bridge that gap, invite them over for dinner. They can just get to know him and hopefully get past, you know, overt racism. And, and so this daughter is going to have a choice, isn't she? Like if she's going to date this guy, if they really love each other, and her parents are, you know, they're you know they're stuck in 1855, <laughs> then she's going to have a choice to make. And sometimes we, we are put in those positions where where we have to choose to do the right thing, even if it if it costs us something, if it doesn't please really important people in our lives. I am a recovering people pleaser. It, it's, been, it's been one of the, the stories of, of my life. You know, even this week when I was, you know, I was getting the sermon ready, I was kind of, I was, I was almost grieving a little bit, to be honest with you, because I was thinking about, you know, my, my journey of people pleasing and what that cost me. Now, at the same time, I'm, I'm also celebrating because I know there's hope in that journey and there could be something better. But I was thinking about my story and what led to me being a people pleaser. I grew up in a working class family where we, we were really lower middle class, so we didn't have as much as a lot of the people around me. And I was pretty young when I realized that. I could feel that. I looked around and looked at my clothes and, you know, my clothes maybe aren't as cool as some of the other kids. This is like second grade. And, and somewhere along that, uh, that, you know, that journey, I got the idea that I don't have some advantages that other people have. They maybe have more money than us or more connections than us. And so I have to, I just have to earn it. I have to claw my way to whatever success, quote unquote, that I want to attain in life. And, and so I just have to impress people. I have to be super professional. And I have to be the nice guy who never ruffles any feathers. And if people want me to do something, never say no and just do it, work long hours. And I became a workaholic in college. It's working at a, a job, going to school full-time, volunteering church on top of that, had a relationship going at the, at the same time, and, and, and just being a people pleaser, not saying no and just burning the candle at both ends. And, and of course, you can say, you can look at that person and say, oh, that's a really nice guy who wants to help people. 
And there is a payoff for that, isn't there? For those of you who can identify with me, there's a payoff for making everybody happy all the time because they like you, and, and it can get you places. So after college, and some of you maybe heard, heard my story, I got this internship in Kansas City that was, that was like a great opportunity in my denomination, as silly as that sounds, the denomination I was part of at the time was like one of the leading churches, and, and I got this amazing opportunity, it was partly because I was a people pleaser, because I had this need to impress people, this need out of probably a fear of failure and a fear of rejection. I probably had both. And, and there was a payoff for that, but there was a cost. And in my 20s and even my 30s, and even since some of you have known me, I have experienced the pain that comes along with people pleasing. And there were a few things that kind of broke me out of that, you know, getting tired of being taken advantage of. There are, there are people in this world who are kind of predatory people. Not many, but they do enough damage. It seems like there's more of them. And, and feeling that, you know, from some of those people kind of taught me, wait, you, you, gotta, you gotta stick up for yourself. You gotta speak up here. I took some criticism for some beliefs as my theology, as my spiritual journey morphed, and I started to say things out loud. I took some criticism for that over the past 10 years. And, and so that criticism kind of helped me realize, wait a second, criticism doesn't kill you. It, it, if somebody's angry at you, if somebody doesn't like you, if they're not happy with something you just said, it, that doesn't make you instantly die. <laughs> there, there's hope. And so it kind of helped me to, to kind of work through some of those feelings. And, Maybe you've heard me say this before. There's a pastor I know who, who uh, said something that has always stuck with me. He said he prays a prayer pretty frequently. God, give me a softer heart and thicker skin. If you're a people pleaser, maybe that's a prayer for you. God, give me a softer heart and thicker skin. That I still care for people and I'm not calloused and, and closed off. We don't want to do that. But at the same time, realize people are people and, and you can't make everybody happy all the time. And you can be you, and it's going to be it's going to be okay. But it was a long journey, and it still is a long journey for me. And, and maybe the same for you. One of the one of the ways that that plays out for me here is that ever so often, is it ever so often or every so often? Does anybody ever think about that? I maybe that's just me, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure which one it is. But one of those two phrases, occasionally, we'll go with occasionally. When I'm not uh, when I'm not here, or if I just need a break, I'll show video sermons, and I'll show video sermons of Adam Hamilton. So if I'm not speaking live, you see the best pastor in America. And and as silly as it is to me, there are times that there are people. Oh, you aren't speaking live today. Oh man, you know. And really, okay, like you know, you got Adam. But that's for me. That's one way of building sustainability in my life. And not just giving in to people pleasing. I work a full time job outside of the church. I can't give fifty three sermons a year, once every week, and once on you know Christmas Eve. I just can't. I can't do that. And so it's it's a way of, of, of me being in this you know journey towards getting out of people pleasing. But maybe you can identify with the fear of rejection or the fear of failure. Well, last week we read this quote by Marianne Williamson that, that so many people love where she says that you know, being small doesn't serve the world. That, that just, you know, apologizing all the time and, and tiptoeing and walking on eggshells and never rocking the boat and just keeping everybody happy around you, 
that, that doesn't serve the world. That doesn't serve God's purpose in your life. That's not the life God has called you to. It robs you of joy. It, it robs you of the gift of being yourself. And, and in that quote, she says, you are a child of God. You are a child of God. So last week we talked about our identity as a child of God. I want to read another scripture this week about what it means to be a child of God and, and how God feels about you and what that says about people pleasing. So in Christian theology, Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is the son of God. There are lots of questions about what that means. Given some sermons in the past about that. We'll talk about it again in the future, but God is called father. Jesus is the son. It was a patriarchal time. But at the same time, there are familiar terms, familial terms, father, son. You can think of mother, daughter, works the same way. There's this idea that everybody who wants to follow Jesus is a child of God. That, we, that God is a parent, God doesn't have a body, God is not male or female, but God is a parent, and that we are children of God. And that means you are a member of God's family. And even though Jesus is God in the flesh and Jesus is Lord, there's also this sense in Christian theology that Jesus is kind of like an older brother. Jesus is the son of God, but you are a child of God as well. And Jesus is like an older brother in a sense, and Lord and God all at the same time. But there's this, there's this family relationship. And I want to see how that plays out. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Matthew tells us about the baptism of Jesus. So you can read along with me on the screen. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, John the Baptist. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven, God's voice, said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him, I am well, say it with me, pleased. This is my Son, whom I love. And with him, I am well pleased. That's the voice that comes from heaven when Jesus is baptized. In the 21st century, like we say, here at the well, there are people, we look, you know, post-enlightenment, post-scientific revolution, there are people who have questions about miracles and voices from heaven and all of that. But when you see a miracle in the Bible, something amazing in the Bible, it's not there just for its own value, just, oh, look, oh cool, look what happened, cool. A miracle is there for its meaning. So when you see something in, in, in the Bible that is a miracle, miraculous, amazing, maybe hard to believe for some, you look at it and you say, what does it mean? What is it there for? So we're looking for the meaning of the miracle. And so when Jesus comes out of the water and the voice of God speaks this over his life, what does that mean? Well, first of all, of course, it means what we just said about Christian theology. And that's the beginning of Matthew telling us who Jesus is, Jesus' identity. And so, of course, it, it fulfills that function. 
But what else does it mean? One of the things that you and I can take from the scripture as people who are also children of God is that Jesus hadn't done anything cool yet. There was no Sermon on the Mount yet. There was no feeding of the 5,000 yet. There were no cool healings or exorcisms. We're going to talk about those things in this next series, um, Jesus and the Gospel of Mark for Lent. We're going to talk about the real Jesus and what some of those things mean for us today. But he hadn't done anything. There were no crowds yet following him. Nobody was, nobody was worshiping him. Nobody was meeting in church, singing songs to him or about him at this point. He was a guy, a dude, who, who got baptized, believing he wanted to follow God, God the Father, and he's baptized because he's somebody who is, who is fulfilling what he feels called to do. And he hears this voice from heaven. This is my son, whom I love, and with him, say it with me again, I am well pleased. Before he had done anything cool, Jesus hadn't done anything to please God yet, so to speak. He hadn't, he hadn't done anything to try to be a success. He wasn't walking on eggshells. He wasn't just trying to keep God happy. Please just don't get mad, God. Maybe that is a relationship some of us feel like we have with God. But he, he just was. He just was. And God's reaction to his son, the son of God, was, that's my boy, whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. And you were a child of God. So what does that mean for you? Before you do anything cool, before you're a success, before you impress people, whether or not you walk on eggshells, whether or not you make people happy all around you, or you don't ever express your opinion, you know, and you just want everybody to feel good, and you want to be, you know, a good little boy, a good little girl, whatever. What that means is God says to you, this is what this story tells us. It's like a voice from heaven says to you, speaks to you through the scripture. You are my child, whom I love. Can you feel it? Can you feel these words being spoken to you? And with you, I am well, and say with me, pleased. So Christian theology tells us for people who want to follow Jesus Christ, you're a child of God. And the message that God speaks into your life, this isn't just self-help, this isn't like pop psychology, this is Christian theology through the ages. You are a member of the family of God, you're a child of God, and God speaks to you. You are my child, whom I love, and in you I am well pleased. That's how God feels about you. And I, in my own life, and this is true for any of us, when we get a sense of, of what that really means, and we begin not just to believe that with our heads, but you, you start to, to feel that with your heart. That list of 10 things and all the pressures we feel and make everybody happy and always never saying no and always apologizing, always, those things just start to get smaller, don't they? If I begin to feel 
in my being what my identity actually is. I'm a child of God, whom God loves, and God is well pleased with me. It doesn't mean I'm perfect. It doesn't mean I'm sinless. I don't have, I'm not going to be in this life. That's, there's this thing called grace. There's this thing called mercy that, that our God bestows upon the world, including you. And, and, and God looks at you in that way, and all of those things just start to look smaller and smaller and smaller. I just don't have to live that way anymore. We're actually going to have a baptism here next week. Um, Julie and Megan, if you know them, they have three girls. And, uh, and they're going to bring their, their daughters for baptism. Now, there are people in the church that come from different traditions. We have people from all kinds of different church traditions here. It's what we say about baptism is we honor the tradition people came from. So there are churches that believe in only baptizing adults after they've made a decision to follow Jesus. And they usually baptize them by immersion. Um, those folks are called Baptists because they believe in baptizing people after they've made a decision to follow Christ, usually as an adult or a teenager. Most Christian churches in the world baptize infants. Both are fine. There is nothing wrong with either one of them. Both are Christians. They're, child, they're children of God, whom God loves, and he's well pleased with them. And so when people come from a tradition who, that baptizes infants, we do that here too. So I'm, I'm saying this real, real quick, just for those who maybe have come from a different tradition. What that means is when you baptize a child, it doesn't mean that the water is magic. We don't believe in magic water, no matter when a person is baptized. But baptism is a, it's an initiation rite into the family of God. And, and for the parents, it's saying, I want to raise my kids the best I possibly can to follow Jesus. We're not Jesus, but we're doing our best. And it's, it's the child's choice as they grow older. When, when they grow older, they will confirm their faith and, and decide for themselves do they want to follow Jesus. So next week, we're going to have this baptism. And the point I'm making here is it doesn't matter, to me at least, in the history of Christianity, when you're baptized. Baptism doesn't save you. Your decision to follow Jesus does. But I'm just acknowledging their people who come from different traditions, but you're going to see that next week. And so they're going to invite family members, and it's going to be this beautiful occasion where we're going to baptize these little girls. And baptism reminds us of this, this message about identity, who you are. And so as we baptize those little girls next week, you can think about your own, if you've been baptized, and God's saying to you, you are my child, whom I love, and whom I'm well pleased. If you haven't been baptized, then you can talk to me about that, and we can we can make that happen. And, and usually, if it's somebody who's a teenager, an adult, usually we baptize by immersion. We have somebody with a swimming pool, no kidding, and we'll all gather around the swimming pool, and I'll immerse you and baptize you, and I just tell people, I'm going to hold you down one second for every sin you've ever committed. That's it. And I'll just bring you right back up. But if you haven't been baptized, you can talk to me, and we can, we can make that happen. But that's what baptism means for us. And when you know you're loved by God like that, people-pleasing just begins to lose its power. 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 through 19. says, And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. That's a statement, isn't it? Is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. 
There is no fear in love. Many of you probably know this next line. But perfect love drives out fear. Maybe you heard perfect love casts out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Perfect love drives out fear. Once you feel, not just with your head, but with your heart, once you feel God's love for you, God is love, and God says to you, you are my child, whom I love, and in you I am well pleased. Fear that's behind that list of ten things, it just begins to lose its power, and the scripture says it's driven out by God's love. Doesn't that feel amazing? If you struggle with people pleasing the way I do, perfect love drives out fear. You're a child of God. God is love. God says to you, you're my child, whom I love, and in you, I am well pleased. I want to just do a little exercise here to wrap up about how this can work in our lives. Um, and there's going to be kind of a two-part a two-part uh, meaning to this exercise we're about to do. Um, at first, some of you may not see the connection, but I hope it will become very clear. Um, I'm going to use two examples. And uh, the first example is one that just has to do with an issue, like the, one of the issues we talked about last month, because you'll see why. And then the second example is going to have to do with fear of rejection or fear of failure. And I'm going to show you how we can begin to think differently about who we are and the things we believe about ourselves and who God is, and then how that can go from our heads to our hearts. Does that make sense? All right, let's take a look. In uh, seminary, of all places, because I wasn't expecting it, in seminary, one of the professors took us through a critical thinking model, a model of critical thinking. I have, uh, I have a graphic here, and I did not expect that, in seminary. I, and it just I guess tells you about my background in church. I did not expect that part of my seminary education would, think, would teach me how to think. But it did, and I'm, I'm glad it did. I didn't know what to think at first, but, but I was pleasantly surprised. Would you agree with me that we live in a time where it would be nice if more people had critical thinking skills? Brothers and sisters, would you like to know? Oh, wouldn't it be great if more people in our world had critical thinking skills? I want you to write, what's the date today? Is it February 16th, 2020? February 16th, 2020, you were sitting in a church service where critical thinking was discussed. I want you to remember that. And so I'm going to give you an example of what this can look like just in general with any issue. And then the second example here in a minute, we're going to plug in something about fear of rejection and fear of failure. And we can see how critical thinking can help us think about issues that matter, but it also can help us think about things we're going through. And if we change the way we think, we can change the way we feel. That's the basis of, of cognitive uh, uh, behavioral psychology. All right, so let's go through the critical thinking model. I'm going to show you how this works. All right, you, uh, you hear any truth claim. Any claim is made. Somebody says something. You see something on cable news. A claim is made. A friend of yours says something. Somebody at work says something. You read something. You think something on your own. Any statement that is made, you can just plug it in to this model. 
I had something I wanted to show you and I skipped past it. Sorry, Susie, you're probably waiting on me. Could you go back to that graphic real quick? One of the reasons that we need critical thinking, I love this meme. I think this may be Photoshopped. I love that. One of my favorites. Bigfoot's riding a unicorn. We're, we're just bombarded by untruths, by, by statements that may be based on somebody's opinion, not on fact or evidence. And the same is true for our own personal lives and how we feel about ourselves. We can be bombarded with lies that cause us to fear rejection, to fear failure. And so I didn't want to leave that one out. Thank you, Susie. I appreciate it. We can go back to the critical thinking model. So here's, here's one example using an issue. So last month, we had the series, we are, or we have issues 2020. We are issues 2020. No, we have issues 2020. <laughs> we talked about several issues that we're going to hear about this year in a presidential election year. One of those was climate change. So we're just going to run through an example here. If you didn't hear that sermon, you can go back and listen to it, wellaz.org. And so we'll run through this statement, and then we're going to go on to, to uh, people pleasing next. Let's say you hear the statement, climate change is a hoax. Let's say somebody makes that statement. You hear it on cable news or a friend of yours, you read it somewhere. And we're going to go through the critical thinking model. So climate change is a hoax. How does a critical thinking model work? We start on the left. First, I consider the source. Who made this statement? Um, is this source biased in any way? Uh, does this source have assumptions that should be acknowledged? What does this source say about other things? Um, is this source credible? Is this source trustworthy? So anytime a truth cl uh, claim is made, we start by considering the source. Is this a trustworthy source? And then we go to the top. Is it evidence-based? What evidence is there to back up this truth claim, whatever it is? So climate change is a hoax. Is there evidence to back up that statement? If you spend a lot of time consuming information from sources that tend to deny climate change, then yes, you might think there is. And it might be hard for you to sit and listen to a pastor on a Sunday morning talk about climate change. It might make you agitated or nervous. But 90-some percent of the scientists in the world, including NASA, people who study the atmosphere, have pointed out ample evidence that climate change is real. And there are people who will cherry pick, like they'll pick a month that is colder than average. And they'll say, oh, back in April of 2017, the temperature was actually 1.2 degrees lower than normal sea climate change zones. And what they do is, of course, they ignore the bigger picture and will cherry pick little incidences. I, when I was researching for that sermon, I saw a lot of examples of that. I said, wow, I didn't realize it was quite that brazen. Or there are people who just deny there's a problem. So is it evidence-based? Not really. Okay, so we would go on to the third step. Consider other viewpoints. Are there other viewpoints about this issue? So climate change is a hoax. Are there other viewpoints about that? Yes, there are other viewpoints. NASA and and. Climate scientists and geologists and people who drill and study ice cores and meteorologists. And at this point, most of society, including business, is real. I saw actually an episode, uh, 
it was just a money show on, on CNBC where they're like, stocks like fossil fuel stocks are, the future is not good. So business people are acknowledging now, yes, there are other viewpoints that, yeah, the science seems to show that climate change is real. So there are other viewpoints. And then lastly, what are the logical outcomes of this truth claim? Climate change is a hoax. What are the logical outcomes? If that's true, in other words, if this statement is true, what are the logical outcomes of that? Beyond just that issue, what else does that mean? So, if 90-some percent of the scientists in the world are wrong, it's a conspiracy, they're lying, what are the logical outcomes of that? What does that mean for medical science? What does that mean for human reason and our powers of observation and how we know what we know and the same brain that you use to know when to turn left and turn right to get here this morning when you apply logical thinking to an issue, oh, well, no, that doesn't work, the scientific method's bunk, or it's a big conspiracy and they're all lying to us. What are the logical outcomes of that? Well, we live in a pretty dark world. If we can't trust brains and observation and the scientists of the world are all lying to us, then the logical outcome of that is, man, we live in a pretty tough place. Do you see, you see how this works? What are the logical outcomes of that statement? So any, any issue that you hear, I'll, I'll step out of the way. If some of you are picture takers, man, feel free to snap a picture of that screen with your phone. Any issue, any truth claim during this election season, anything you read, anything you see on TV, anything a friend says to you, you can run it through this model. Consider the source. Is it evidence-based? Are there other viewpoints? And what are the logical outcomes if that statement is true? All right, let's apply it to people-pleasing. So the next statement, for example, is, is something that somebody who struggles with people-pleasing might tell themselves. Maybe they even heard this from somebody else. I hope not, because if somebody says that to you, I mean, that's, that's a horrible thing to say to somebody, and that would cut deep. But people who struggle with people-pleasing might, you know, might believe something. They might make this statement to themselves. Even if they haven't heard it from other people, they might just say, you know, I can't say no, or they will reject me. I have to bend over backwards to make these people happy, or they won't love me, and they'll reject me, and they'll leave me. So let's run that statement through the critical thinking model. First of all, consider the source. If somebody said that to you, that person's mean. You would never say that to somebody you love. And so if somebody really did say that to you, man, that that just that that cuts deep. That hurts. And I'm sorry that happened to you. Because that's a horrible thing. Now, if you say that to yourself, consider the source. Because if you're somebody who is beating yourself up all the time and telling yourself things that end up hurting you, well, then you can see that pattern in your own life. And so if you say, well, consider the source, well, man, I do, I do make statements. Like, maybe I, should, maybe I should think differently about that. You start by considering the source, and then you move up to the top. Is it evidence-based? For some, it may be. 
It may be. There may have been somebody in your life, and you said no, and they rejected you. So there may be evidence of that in your life, but the critical thinking model's not done yet. There may be evidence of that. Now, is there evidence of people not doing that? I would hope so. When you've, when you've drawn a boundary line, or you said no, and they didn't reject you, and you said, you know what, I can't do this anymore, and they still love you. Hopefully there's evidence of that too. Let's go on to the third one. Are there other viewpoints? Are there, are there opposing points of view? When you say, I can't say no, or they're gonna reject me. If I don't bend over backwards and do what they want me to do, I'll be a failure and they'll reject me and they won't love me. Are there other viewpoints? Well, this sermon is another viewpoint. And every counselor or therapist you would ever see is gonna offer you a different viewpoint. And friends who love you, are going to offer you a different viewpoint. And they're gonna say, you know what, no, you don't wanna be, be a slave to somebody. You want people who love you for who you are and not use you all the time. So yes, there are other viewpoints. And when we have this, this baptism next week, that's gonna remind us of another viewpoint, won't it? Whose who's viewpoint? God's. You are my child, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. So who has another viewpoint? Your heavenly parent who loves you, who is love, and who loves you. And then what are the logical outcomes? If I believe that statement's true, I can't say no or they'll reject me. What are the logical outcomes of that statement? If you, if, if you act like it's true and you just let that statement play out, what are the logical outcomes of that? You can't be yourself. You know you're getting used. You can't have the joy that would come from being your own person. You can't think for yourself. You can't act for yourself. That's a logical outcome. You're, you're keeping this person around who, by the way, by the way, may not even really think that. But you think they do. And if you got more honest about how you feel, Maybe they would say to you, you know what? I can see that. Maybe not immediately. Maybe it would be an adjustment for them. But maybe, maybe they would actually say to you, you know what, you're right. And I, you be you, it's gonna be okay. And you might have just opened the door to a whole new relationship with somebody. But the logical outcomes of a statement like that are gonna, are gonna lead to people pleasing. It's gonna rob you of joy and rob you of who you really are. And of course, the logical outcome would also be, if that's true, that's how every relationship in the world would have to function, if it's true. Does every relationship in the world function like that? No, no. And so, it's, when you're running through the critical thinking model, people-pleasing begins to fall apart. And if you really struggle with this, like I have and still do, then you can, you can catch these statements that you make to yourself. Well, I have to keep these people happy, or oh, I don't wanna rock the boat, or I shouldn't say anything. Little old me, you know, I, I can't do that, well, what would they think if I do that? And all the statements that we make, you can run them through this critical thinking model. And do they really even make sense? Psychology Today, that same article, offers some simple steps in addition to critical thinking. They say, for example, while it's important to impress your boss and show that you can be agreeable, being subservient can backfire. 
You'll never reach your greatest potential if you're trying to be all things to all people. Start getting out of the people-pleasing habit by saying no to something small. Like, start small. You know? Like, well, um, could you hand me a post-it note? No. You know? Start there. <laughs> you start small. What? Start small. Whatever works for you. Start small. Express your opinion about something simple. You know? You know what? I like puppies. I don't care what anybody thinks. I, you know, just start somewhere. Express your opinion. Like I said, the jokes aren't getting any better, you guys. <laughs> Express your opinion about something simple. Or take a stand for something you believe in. Take a stand. Do you think that's needed in 2020? Oh, do you think that's needed in 2020? Yes. Take a stand for something you believe in. Each step you take will help you gain more confidence in your ability to be yourself. If you're really struggling to let go of these habits, seek help. A therapist can help you build the mental strength you need to create the kind of life you want to live. Um, and I'll close with this. On December 15th, 2010, I walked into uh, our apartment in uh, a suburb of Columbus, Ohio, and uh, I was finishing seminary and had, had just taken a, a Greek exam. So I was in a, a, a New Testament written in Greek, so you have to learn Greek. And I'd taken a Greek exam and uh, my seminary was like an hour and a half drive one way, so I'd driven back and, and walked in the door. And uh, as soon as I opened, opened the door of our apartment, my wife Hannah was standing there and she said, my water just broke. And, and it was about that time, it had been nine months. And uh, this was our, our first child. And I had a, a very male response as soon as she told me that. I said, are you sure? <laughs> and she just, she just kind of looked at me. You know, there are looks where you don't really have to say anything. There are no words necessary. She kind of looked at me for just that split second. I said, okay. And I grabbed the, grabbed the bags. We went out to the car and, and drove her to, to uh, Riverside Methodist Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. And um, eight and a half hours later, it was a eight and a half hour uh, uh, labor for her. Um, December 16th, uh, 2010, our, our oldest boy, Graham, was born. And he helps us around here. You know how much I talk about my kids. And, you know, and uh, um, that night, I didn't sleep the entire night. Um, I drove home to get some things because uh, we were kind of in a hurry. We left and forgot some things. And while I was at our place that night for a few minutes, the night he was born, so he had been in the world for, you know, a few hours, uh, I went back to our apartment. And I was so overwhelmed with you know, having our son, he's here, our boy's here. Uh, and I was alone in the apartment and I got out the computer. And I decided I wanted to type out a letter to my son on the day that, that, he, was, that he was born. And I'm not going to re read much of it because that's going to be between him and me. And, I'll, and uh, I'll, uh, I'll give it to him when he turns 18. But I do want to read just a little snippet of something that I, that I wrote to my son on the day he was born, when I was bursting with, with the pride and joy of, of being a new father. And I have it here on the screen, I, I think. I wrote, there will be times when you are tempted to doubt your own abilities and give up on your dreams. No matter how discouraged you may feel or what adversity you may face, 
I want you to know that I will always believe in your dreams. Okay. So, and the reason I, the reason I read that when we're talking about this topic today is because from my upbringing and from most, most of you probably had something similar. The idea that you get of God or your faith is that God's not like that. But that's what a normal loving parent feels for their children. And I was in a day when it was just kind of bursting out of them. But that's how any loving person feels about their kids. Anybody who really loves them and wants to think through the, the implications of being a parent and the influence that has on your child, that's how anybody feels. And we're given these terms that we discussed earlier about God and faith and Christian theology, that God is a parent and that we are God's children. And what would it look like for you as you maybe deconstruct your faith or reconstruct your faith if you begin to see God as the kind of person that would write something like that to you? What would that feel like? If, if God would say to you, no matter how discouraged you may feel or what adversity you may face, I want you to know that I will always believe in your dreams. What if, what if your view of God was that God's the kind of entity, person, that would write that to you? And how would that feel? And how would that affect people-pleasing? It just, it just seems like, man, that just drives out the fear. That I don't have to, I don't have to go through life afraid, fear of rejection or fear of failure. And, and those can come from very, very painful experiences. It can take a long time to get over it. Maybe seeing a counselor or life coach would help. And one sermon's not, not going to do it for sure. But what would it look like to run through that critical thinking model and with, with the, the statements that we make to ourselves or maybe even the things other people have said to us? And then instead of those, those statements that were lies and that lead to fear, rejection, failure, instead we begin to adopt statements like this. And then we begin to hear God say, you are my child, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Everybody can pray with me. God, we're thankful, so thankful for the scripture that we read today that presents a different view of, of God than what is typical. And there are all kinds of reasons for that, how religion functions and religious leaders and, and their own backgrounds and assumptions throughout history, but this is what we have given to us in the life of Jesus. And one of the first followers of Jesus writing in this letter to 1 John says, God is love. And perfect love drives out fear. We don't, we don't have to live in this prison of people pleasing. You know, surrounded by this clutter to where we can't even move. And it, it's, it's smothering. And it, it prevents us from getting to the places we want to 
getting life and being the people we want to be and having the relationships that we could have and, and, and just being free. So God, I pray this week as we maybe even think about that critical thinking model, what are the, what are the lies I believe, the statements I believe that produce the fear of rejection, the fear of failure in my life? And what would it look like for me to run those statements through that critical thinking model? Maybe even as just a daily spiritual exercise, just take one of those statements that you know you believe in, just you run it through that critical thinking model. Consider the source. Is it evidence-based? Are there other viewpoints? What are the logical outcomes of this? We start to see that these things are just lies that, that produce fear. And we're tired of it. We're sick of the clutter. And it's time to clean house. And instead, maybe after running those statements to the critical thinking model, we can repeat what is the truth. The truth about our identity. God, the creator, says you are my child, whom I love, in you, I am well pleased. And of course, as soon as we say that, oh, but I'm, I commit sins and I've done things, and, and of course, of course, all of those, all of those things are true. But this is about who God is and about who we're called to be and who we can be. And God is love. And God says to you, you are my child, whom I love, and you I am well pleased. And you'll grow closer to God as you follow him, as you follow Jesus. And you'll grow in your own love for other people and for yourself and your self-respect. And you'll begin to see that clutter of people pleasing. Just thrown out one bag at a time. And God, we thank you for that picture of, of freedom that is available to all of us here. We thank you, God, for who you are and for who you say we are. In Jesus' name, everybody said.